Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. So we're going to start a new series today, and you guys are going to grow sick of the title, hopefully, uh, hopefully not, maybe, um, but called Transforming the Spaces We Inhabit by the Power of the Gospel. You guys have heard me say this. Has anyone not heard me say this, and you've been here more than like one or two weeks? Right? You guys are like, oh gosh. They even put it on the wall. If you didn't notice, it, it's on the wall in the lobby now. Everybody's like, where? Yeah, you can thank Abby for that. Uh, it's on the wall in the lobby. But we're starting this series really because you probably have heard me talk about this. And it sounds nice, right? It sounds, ah, transformative. It sounds like catchy. It's like, yeah, all right. What does that mean? And so what I want to do in this series is sort of unpack what we mean by transforming the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel and how that works itself out. Okay? And so what I want to do today, I've told you guys before uh, this that, uh, you know, there's Christian buzzwords, right? Like, you guys ever heard the term Christianese? You guys know that term? So we, we in the church have these buzzwords, don't we? That we just assume everybody else knows what they mean, right? Like kingdom. You say kingdom and everybody's like, oh, that's a cool word. But if you ask, like if we just stood by the door as you guys walked out and said, I want you to just, uh, like, describe and explain the kingdom, everybody would go out the side door, Right? Um, or we have this word discipleship, right? This word discipleship. We're going to make disciples. And, and I would imagine that if I asked most of you, you would say, well, I know what it is to be a disciple. But I'll bet if we compared notes and compared stories that we would have probably just as many different definitions of the word disciple as we have people in this room. Because here's the thing. Everybody sort of assumes their definition is the right one. And so what happens across the church is we use these words, disciple, and we say, we got to make disciples. And you assume everybody else thinks the same thing you do, right? If you've ever said that to somebody, we're going to make disciples. And you just assume that we all mean the same thing. And for some of you, discipleship means, well, it's reading the Bible together. That's discipleship. Or for others of you, it's like, well, I went through this basic Christian course, and that was discipleship. Or I hung out with this guy that was 20 years older than me and he discipled me and now I'm a disciple. And that's discipleship. Or maybe for, for a lot of you, you're like, it's got to be more than just like a little window, right? Like discipleship has to be something bigger than that. And so maybe for you, it's like, it's the, the collection of all the things that you've done to like, that are related to Jesus, right? It's all the Bible studies I've done. It's all of the, the basic discipleship studies that I've gone through. That's discipleship. Or for some of you, it's maybe the, the rhythm of spiritual disciplines that you participate in, right? Like you've chosen to take a Sabbath and you've chosen to every morning I get up and I have this rhythm of reading scripture and this is discipleship. But if you can imagine, the person next to you may not have the same definition, and so it creates a problem, doesn't it? Like you can see where this is going. The problem it, is, it creates is that when we say, let's go and make disciples of all nations, we all have a different idea about what that means. And we're not really sure how to implement it. And it creates a real problem. That's not the only word that does this. You see, one of the challenging words in our Christianese is this word gospel. We say we're going to preach the gospel. 
We probably have, I don't know how many people are here, that many different ideas as to what that means. What do you mean when you preach the gospel? And so the challenge in our mission statement of transforming the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel is that we have a whole bunch of different ideas as to what it means to transform the spaces, right? Whatever we think gospel means, that's how the spaces get transformed. And for some of you, whenever I say gospel, you would go, what the heck does power have to do with the gospel? Why does it have to be by the power of the gospel? Why can't it just be the gospel? And so what I want to do today as we begin this series is I want to unpack what we mean by the gospel. And we want to transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. What do we mean? And I want to, to look at that. And here's the thing. I don't want to give you my definition. I want to give you Jesus' definition. Can we all agree that probably the gospel belongs to Jesus so he can say what it is? Is that fair? Anybody disagree with that idea? Like I can't just make it up on my own? Cool. Great. So we're going to let Jesus define what gospel is. And I'm calling this message simply by the power of the gospel. So would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at Scripture. So Lord Jesus, I do just welcome you into this space. And Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill this place? We give you all the glory, all the power, all the honor. Lord, we are so grateful that you have come to us. And that you welcome us in. God, as we look at the Scriptures to understand what you mean by the Gospel, would you put power on this message, Lord? Would you enable me to speak the words that you have given? Not my words, Lord, but yours. And God, would you enable us to un uncover what it is that you intend for us to be and do in this world? Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And while you're turning there, or looking at the screen waiting for it to come up, the context of, this, uh, of the verse that we're going to look at, in the book of Luke, the very beginning is like Jesus being born, right? We read this at Christmas. We're going to read the birth story at Christmas, right? That whole thing. And then there's sort of this gap. Like Jesus kind of grows up. And you're like, well, we don't really get much of a glimpse at what happens to Jesus for the next 30 years almost. But then Jesus is led out into the wilderness to, to be uh, tempted by the devil. And after 40 days, he comes back and we get to chapter 4, which is where we're going to pick it up in verse 14. And here's what it says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole con uh, countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him 
and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out, to the town, out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is a very interesting story, is it not? It's a very interesting uh, story because there's a quote of a passage in the book of Isaiah right in the middle of it. And the quote that, that Jesus opens the scroll to, I don't know if it's, it's a lectionary passage, just happened to be the week that Jesus was in town to preach and they handed it to him or if he selected it, it's not really clear. But what Jesus wants to teach is that the gospel is the fulfillment of kingdom promise. The gospel is the fulfillment of kingdom promise. To understand what Isaiah is saying, you have to understand the meaning of the year of Jubilee. How many of you are familiar with the concept Jubilee? If you ever sit and talk to Evan for any amount of time, the CCO pounds this Jubilee thing over and over and over because it's a concept that you have to understand if you want to know what the rest of the Bible is about. So let me explain it to you. In the Old Testament, whenever, whenever uh, God rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt and he took them out and they wandered in the desert for a while and then they land in the promised land and he gives them the, the land and they, they divvy it up among all of the sons and when he, he gives them this command, he says, six years you labor, six years you plant crops, you, you harvest crops, on the seventh year you take a Sabbath year. You plant nothing. You let the ground lay fallow. Don't do anything. And the test of that was that God's people would then be provided in year six with enough crops for year six, year seven, into year eight when the cycle would start over. So every seven years, we have a Sabbath year. We take a break. Imagine if that was your workplace. Six years I worked. Seventh year I just chilled, right? After six years, or after seven cycles of this, though, on the 49th year, we would celebrate the, that same Sabbath year. On the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. Now, the concept of the year of Jubilee is God's uh, opposition to generational poverty. The way that this worked is that on the 50th year, whatever ground you had gained, you had to give back. So if somebody had sold you part of their land in, in exchange for a debt, on the 50th year, you had to give it back. If someone had sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt, on the 50th year, you set them free. They're free to do what they want to do now. And the, the reason for this is the ground belongs to God. It does not belong to you. The crops you can have. The people don't belong to you. The service, though, you can have. And so on the 50th year, everything would be set right. 
Everything would be turned over. Everything would be put back the way it initially happened. And that was God's uh, attempt to, to end generational poverty. Here's the problem. Sounds like a good system, right? Sounds like a really good system. There's no evidence that the nation of Israel ever did it. In fact, if you read on through the prophets, when you get to Isaiah, one of the biggest problems, the reason that the nation of Israel gets exiled is because they mistreat the poor. They don't, they don't treat the poor well. They don't actually uh, an equity. And so they get displaced from the land largely because they, they didn't follow the concepts of this idea of jubilee. But you get to chapter 61 of Isaiah, and he says, there will come a day. There will come a day when a Messiah will come who will exercise God's jubilee. And when God's jubilee comes, everything gets set right. And so the, the nation of Israel has been looking for this Messiah for centuries. And so when Jesus stands up and he reads this passage, what he's saying is that this is the com coming of the year of Jubilee. He says, look again at, uh, at uh, verse 18, says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what happened when God sets things back to right. This is the gospel. The kingdom has come. God is in charge now. And this is what happens when God is in charge. That's the good news, the gospel. And when the kingdom comes, when the Messiah, the king gets his way, what happens is good news is preached to the poor. The gospel is good news for poor people. People who are infirmed, people who are sick, people who are blind, people who can't hear are made well. People who are oppressed are set free. In fact, that, that's the liberation that the nation of Israel is hoping for when Jesus shows up. Hey, we're being oppressed by the Romans. If you're the Messiah, you're going to get rid of these guys because we're being oppressed. That's the thing that, that happens when the kingdom comes. The gospel deals with all the ways that humans tend to mistreat each other. The good news, the gospel. You see, the gospel, according to Jesus, is not intended to answer the question, where do I go when I die? How can I get to heaven when I die? The gospel is not at all intended to answer that question. The gospel is intended to answer the question of, how does heaven get into broken places in the earth? That's the gospel. Not, they're not wrong or bad. Well, the thing the church runs into is so much trouble, though, is that we center the gospel on things other than the thing Jesus did. We say, well, the gospel is, you know, where you go when you die. It's about assuring your eternal destiny. Or the gospel is about morality and, and getting yourself clean enough so that you can be good enough. The gospel, even it, we would say sometimes, is it's, you know, it's, it's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And before you stone me as a heretic and get upset, I believe all these things. I believe they're all true. They're just not central to the gospel of Jesus. They answer questions that the gospel triggers, but they're not central to the gospel of Jesus. You see, the gospel is that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has come to fulfill the Jubilee command and usher in the kingdom of God. And what that looks like is the poor are lifted up. 
Those who are infirmed are made well. Those who are oppressed and imprisoned are set free. And that's good news. But it triggers certain questions, does it not? Like one of those questions being, how can sinful people be included in the kingdom of God? See, the good news is the kingdom of God has come, but everybody knows that we're too busted to be a part of the kingdom. And so the question comes, how how can busted people be a part of the kingdom? We're too sinful. And one thing we know is sinful people can't get close to God. How do we get close to God? And the answer to that question is, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You see, Jesus has done everything necessary to make us clean and eligible. It's a part of the gospel. It answers a question of the gospel. It in and of itself is not the gospel. Okay, or prompts another question. What happens to people in the kingdom when they die? Right? Like Paul gets asked this question. You've got these people dying. They're part of the kingdom. What happens now? To which the answer is, for all of those who die in Christ will be with him. Will you be in heaven with Jesus if you die? Yes, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be in heaven with Jesus. It's not central to the gospel. It answers a question prompted by the gospel. Do you see the distinction? A lot of us have accepted some level of gospel that is eternal security or some level of method of how you can be right with God, but what we haven't understood is the gospel is the kingdom of God, that God's rule and reign has begun here and now. If you flip these things, it gets really weird. All of a sudden you have to decide who's in and who's out. All of a sudden you have to go, well, that morality, that's not okay. You can't be included. This one is okay, right? We start drawing lines around who's in and who's out. Do you see this? Does that make sense? Some of you are staring at me like, I think you're crazy. It's okay. It'll get crazier. Um, These are all things that are prompted by the gospel, but the gospel is the kingdom has come. Jubilee has begun. God is setting all things right again. And the actual good news, as explained by Jesus, is that the gospel of the kingdom has come now. The gospel has come now. The kingdom of God has come. Look at verse 20. It says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, you've heard this scripture your entire lives. And you've been waiting for the Messiah to come every day. And today is your day. Today the kingdom has come. Today the Messiah has come. And in this one statement, Jesus says, it's not some far off thing now. The kingdom has come. I'm the Messiah you've been waiting for. And if, you, if you're kind of like, I, I don't know if I agree with that, read all the way through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus says, I have to preach this Gospel of the Kingdom. This is why I was sent to preach the Gospel of the Kingdom. That the Kingdom has come. The good news is that God's Kingdom has begun. Now given what we talked about, you can't just go around saying that. Right? There's got to be some evidence. You can't say that God is making all things new. And not see things around you becoming new, right? And so when you think about the miraculous things that Jesus does, it's not Jesus proving that he's God. 
The miraculous is not God just, or Jesus going, just want you all to know I'm God, that I can do these things. You see, these, the miraculous things that Jesus does is backing up the, the proclamation that he just made that God is making all things new. In fact, so much so that in Luke chapter 7, by the time we get there, John the Baptist is in prison and he's like, are you the Messiah or should we expect somebody else? Because it seems like the Romans are still in charge. Not really sure if you're the guy. Are you the guy or should we wait for somebody else? And here's what Jesus answers. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The evidence that Jesus gives that the kingdom has come, that God's jubilee has begun, is that people are made well, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. These are not just proving that he's God. This is the evidence that the kingdom of God has begun. This is the proof. And the, the, the crazy part about it is that there's power built into the gospel. There's actually power. It's, it's validating the claims that the, God, that the jubilee has begun. And so it's not just for Jesus. When Jesus sends out the disciples, he says, go proclaim the kingdom. And check this out. Matthew 10, 7 says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And he says, heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. If the miraculous was just about Jesus proving that he was God, it would be pointless for him to hand that off to the disciples. Pointless. Or maybe we would go, well, the point is really so that you know they're special, right? And once they die, then all that ends. But it's really just so that you know the disciples are special. But you know, when Jesus dies and is resurrected... Before he's ascended, you would think he would go, hey guys, just keep this between us. Y'all just hang on to this power I gave you. Do the thing for a little while, but don't give it to anybody else. But that's not what he says. He expands the commissioning to include everyone that becomes a disciple. The gospel of the kingdom becomes the inheritance of all of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, part of the kingdom, when you stand up and say, the kingdom has come, you also, inherent in that proclamation, comes the power for demonstration. We're not just people who try to coerce people and convince people that the kingdom is real. We actually demonstrate it. Which means everywhere we go, the poor should be lifted up. The marginalized should be set free from their marginalization. The demonized should be set free and those who are infirm should be healed. That there ought to be a trail behind the church of all of these things. Is that true? Is that true of us? Or do we just have an intellectual gospel? Have we just sort of like summed it up in something else? You see, we're supposed to be people who back up our proclamation with demonstration. We're to be people who lay hands on the sick and see them healed. Not because we're powerful, but because the kingdom of God has come. We're supposed to be people who see someone who's demonized and we call it out in Jesus' name, come out, be free. We set people free. This is just the evidence that the kingdom has come, right? This is just the evidence that the jubilee of God has begun. 
We're the people, we're supposed to be people who live out of generosity that, that the poor would be lifted up. And quite honestly, the critique of the church in our day from those who are outside, they say, you guys talk a lot, but you don't do much. You talk a lot about what people should do and what people should believe, but I don't see it evidenced in what you do. We can't just be Christians who talk about good news. We actually be, we need to be Christians who demonstrate good news. But there's one more thing I want you to see here. We can't leave this out. See, I get really excited when I preach this passage, right? I get to verse 21 and I get all excited. Today it's fulfilled in your hearing. This is amazing, right? Does anybody else get excited about that? Like, nobody? Okay. I just, it's a, it's a preacher thing, right? Get to verse 21. It's just like an, such an emphatic statement. It's like, yeah, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, hearing, hearing. Right? But here's what happens if we stop there. We miss something. We miss something. Look at verse 21 again. It says, he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus doesn't end with verse 21. It says he began preaching in verse 21. If we end that passage where Jesus says he began, we miss the context of the way the kingdom works. We miss something really, really important. And you know what we do whenever we miss that? We tend to limit the spread of the gospel and the impact of the year of jubilee, of God's jubilee. We limit it to the people that we like and who like us. Don't we? I mean, think about it. That's my default, right? I just want to be around people who like me, who tell me I'm good. I'm smart. They like me. They invite me places. They buy me drinks, you know? They're people that like me and the people that I like who don't really push my buttons. You know, they look like me. They vote like me. They have a similar amount of, well, more money than me. They have more money than me. Right? Don't we limit the gospel to the people that make us comfortable? They make us feel nice about our lives? And we, get, we take charge of who gets to experience the kingdom. And that's kind of what these guys are doing. Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. You can just imagine, they're like, he's from here, he's one of us. The Messiah is one of us. That's great. You know, like if you've ever been in like, I went to high school and you know, Walter McCarty, anybody know that name? Walter McCarty played in the NBA. Anyway, just thought you should know that an NBA player came from a high school. Um, but, right, and so we claim the, the superstar who came from our high school, right? Like I'm in the presence of greatness. I mean, we weren't in school at the same time or never met each other. Anyway, but, but he, he, he played in the NBA and he went from, you see what I'm doing here? This is what happens. We like, like to be close to people of greatness, right? And that's what these guys are doing. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? He's one of us. We're going to have the blessings. It's amazing. The Messiah. All these good things are going to come to us. It's so good. And then Jesus says, nah. Look at verse 23. He says, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown 
what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. What? They were so amazed. Now they're furious. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. If you don't read your Bible with the maps, you guys know most of your Bibles have maps, right? Have you ever seen those? You're like, what are, these, what, what are these for? If you don't read your Bible with a map and a little context, it doesn't make sense to you why these people who were so excited three verses earlier, five verses earlier, all, are all of a sudden furious. You read through that and I don't understand. Why are they mad at him? Why are they trying to kill him? They were so excited. He's Joseph's son. Remember, he's one of us. He's amazing. Except for they want to kill him now. The reason that they want to kill him it's because he makes reference to Sidon and Naaman the Syrian. And if you understand a little bit of background, Sidon was this place that was supposed to be part of Israel, but in disobedience, Israel did not conquer Sidon, so it became a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel and actually became a source of great sinfulness for the nation of Israel. The nation kind of mirrored the, the town of Sidon. So whenever he refers to Sidon, this is like the wickedness place. This is like the place of great wickedness. And whenever he refers to Naaman the Syrian, that's an enemy of God's people. He's an enemy of the nation of Israel. You see, the people who were listening expected that Jesus was their own treasure, that he's here to, to, to make everything amazing in Israel again. And Jesus blows up that box. He says, you think I've come to put Israel first. You think I've come to puts you above every nation in the world and everybody's going to look to you as the most powerful and the most amazing. You think I've come to make you superior, but I'm good news for everyone. That's why they want to kill him. It's like, no, 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 we waited for centuries for this Messiah. And now he's talking about saving other people. This is ridiculous. He's supposed to elevate us. Supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel. Why doesn't, why, what's he talking about? You see, the gospel of the kingdom resists being fitted into any nation, into any political system, into any ideology. Because the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is its own nation. It is its own political ideology. It is its own system. It is its own governing authority. The kingdom of God will not be governed by anything else other than King Jesus. So it doesn't fit anywhere. What I've discovered myself is that I can have to be consistently aware of my own associations, my own affinities, my own allegiances, where it is that I try to put the gospel underneath my own desires. Because what I've realized is it's real easy for me to, to be this thing and a Christian. It's real easy for me to just try to fit my Christianity and my, my gospel in uh, underneath the things that I prefer. 
or that make me comfortable. And yet the gospel won't be regulated by anything else. The kingdom will not be constrained by what I'm comfortable with. And that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Don't we want to put the gospel in some place that makes us comfortable? But the gospel won't be constrained by that. It has ever-expanding reach. As soon as I decide the gospel fits in this box, God comes blasting through the side and says, nope, doesn't fit there either. As soon as I try to fit it into this political box or that political box, and trust me, in, in this country, we've seen it in both. Everybody's trying to co-opt Jesus and put the kingdom in their political box. Everybody just sucked up a whole bunch of cushions. And, like he said, something political. Got quiet. Don't we do that, though? I mean, if we're really honest. I mean, if we're not honest, that's okay. We can do something else. But if we're really honest, don't we want to fit it underneath this other ideology? Say, well, Jesus is a Democrat or Jesus is a Republican. Don't we want to do that? It makes us feel better because we're in control. But the gospel is never, never going to be governed by anything else. And the reason this matters is because Jesus desires to reach into every space that you find yourself. Every space. You see, the gospel is good news in every place you find yourself, not just the places that make you comfortable. That's why our mission statement is not transforming the spaces we like by the power of the gospel. Transforming the spaces we are really comfortable in by the power of the gospel. No, it's transforming the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. Because guess what? Every one of us finds ourselves in spaces that we'd rather not be in, don't we? Haven't you been in places that make you uncomfortable? You have never been in a place that Jesus doesn't want to transform. Never. You've never been in a place where Jesus doesn't want access and want to get in and transform. You've never been in a space that the kingdom of God couldn't break into. Even the hardest of hearts, you've never been in a place that Jesus doesn't want to be. You know, in your workplace, where you've decided that this is just hell resident on earth, Everything about this workplace is going to hell in a handbasket. Right? We have those places. And yet Jesus says, let me transform it. I want to transform that space. You know, in your school, in your dorm, where it feels like everything is running contrary to Jesus. Everything about my school experience runs against Jesus. And Jesus says, let me transform that space too. In your family, where division has become normal, and we've lost all hope for any reconciliation, Jesus says, bring me along. I want to transform that space. In your neighborhood where they celebrate evil for Halloween way more than they would celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus says, bring me along. I want to transform that space. You have never been in a space that Jesus doesn't want to plant the kingdom. You've never been in a space where he doesn't want to be. But here's the deal. Jesus doesn't just miraculously plant the kingdom places. He plants the kingdom places through you. See, he puts you in your workplace because he wants to get in there. He puts you in your neighborhood because he wants to get there. He puts you in that school with that roommate that you can't stand because he wants to get access there. He saved you in your family 
without the rest of them because he wants to save the rest of them through you. See, very rarely, if you look at the, the Muslim world, it's a little bit different at the moment, where he'll give dreams to Muslim people who will give their lives to Jesus just because of a dream. But by and large, the, re, the way the kingdom spreads and gets planted in the places around you is through you. You're it. There's like not another option. Which means you're not there by accident. Every place you go, you're there on purpose. And what happens everywhere the gospel takes root is communities form. You guys are like, wait, are you talking about planting the church? Not necessarily. Do you know those people that you talk to, you guys do this already, who will share, like they just share their stuff with you. They're like, you're like, you show up to work and they're like, let me tell you about my life. It's falling apart. You have those people? You show up to school and somebody's like, I had a really rough night last night. These are all invitations for you to be the kingdom person in those spaces. Do you know that? You already have these conversations. And what if instead of going, oh, really? Let's talk about school. What if you said, well, tell me more. And you just were, you guys remember the, whenever COVID started, we, we had this phrase, be the chaplain of your contact list. You remember that? I know Denise remembers that. She told me about it later. Where you're like, hey, I'm a kingdom person. This person's sharing something with me. What if I just offered to pray for that thing? What if the kingdom broke in that way? Like Everywhere you go, communities will form when the kingdom gets planted. And over a period of time, these kingdom communities become places where people find safe haven. I want to finish with this parable from Jesus in Matthew 13. <clears throat> He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. What if that was true of everywhere you took the kingdom? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a workplace that you planted the kingdom in. And though it was small and insignificant, it was just two of you in the break room once a week, it grew and it impacted the entire workplace. But if it was the kingdom of God, it's like you in your school. And you planted the kingdom and like a mustard seed, it was the smallest of things. It was you and a roommate who began to pray together. And over a period of time, it grew such that it was a safe haven for everyone at the school who struggled with anxiety and felt suicidal. What if it gave hope to a university? The kingdom of heaven is, is like you planting the kingdom in your neighborhood, and you and your neighbor begin to pray for and care for the neighborhood. And though it was small, like a mustard seed, it grew that everybody on your block was seen. The woman down the street who was injured and could not mow her yard, instead of turning her in to, to the agencies, you went and mowed her yard for her and heard her story. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed planted in your family. 
where you and your brother or your sister, the only people who know Jesus, though it was small like a mustard seed, it grew. And Jesus rescued your parents and your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. The kingdom of God spreads. Can you imagine that in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood? Can you imagine that? Because God has planted you in these places on purpose. Though you think you're there by accident, you're not. You're there because God intends to transform that space by the power of the gospel. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.